Uh, one thing we forgot to say is we do have children's church today, so if you have a five to eight-year-old and you would like them to go for a time of uh, worship and prayer um, uh, that is just right on their level, we want to invite all our five to eight-year-olds uh, to, to head out to the barn um, where Nick and Carolyn will uh, do the lesson. And that is voluntary, you know, we don't, they don't have to go. Uh, if they want to stay in here and listen to something much more boring, that is cool. All right. If you guys have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're uh, in verses 12 through 28 today. I, I, I described this text last week as a capstone, right? The last thing a builder puts in an arch is the capstone, in it, and it, it holds the whole arch together much in the same way that the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians does for the entire book. Um, so let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that in your word today we would see the glory of the good news, that we would stand up transformed, that we would stand up encouraged, energized to be your people in your world. In Jesus' name, amen. What is our future hope? What, what, what does Christian hope look like? That's a big question to answer because your future hope has a huge bearing on what you do right now. I remember um, when I was a brand new Christian, maybe for a year, I, I used to live in Southern California, and I went, uh, I went surfing one day with a friend who was, uh, you know, he was like this 19-year-old Christian sage, practically, to me. And, um, and so we were surfing, and it was this beautiful sunset that we were, we were watching. You could picture this, right? Southern California, it's sand, the sun's going down over the water. I... I I don't know if anybody else loves this, but when you change out of trunks to dry clothes and a sweatshirt, it doesn't get better than that, right? So that I'm just like fully contented, the sublime moment of watching the sunset. And it dawned on me as a new Christian, it's like, oh, well, I now have a relationship with the God who created this. And I said something to my friend of like, that's so cool that like we know God and God made all this. And he said, yeah, it is but don't get too attached. It's all going to burn. It's like, wait, what? It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, our, our, our future hope for eternity is not anything physical. It's all spiritual. Like your body, the, all this, it's got to go. Your surfboard, right? All this stuff, it's fine for now, right? But really don't get too distracted in this world because our future hope is spiritual, and I started getting that message a lot in my early years as a Christian, that, that the physical world is at best kind of a time waster. It's okay. Maybe it's not sin, but it's, it's not optimal. Playing baseball, it's fine. Not optimal. Sex, if you must. You know, babies have to come from somewhere. Um, you know, music, I guess that's okay if people are, like, getting saved through it or whatever, but... You know, music in and of itself is not really what we're about because our, our future is spiritual, not physical. And, you know, th this, this message is all over the place that kind of like, like at best, the, the physical world is a time waster. At worst, it's like a detriment to the spiritual, that, that the physical actually distracts you from the spiritual. I, I heard things like, your body is just your soul's cocoon. 
And just like that butterfly comes out of the cocoon, one day your soul at death is going to come out of your body and then you'll be truly yourself. You'll be truly free. Even my favorite writer, C.S. Lewis, he, he, he said something like, you have a body, you are a soul. Not necessarily anti-physical, but certainly seeing the spiritual as superior. Even Yoda was in on this game. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. <laughs> this message is all over the place. And some of you may be saying, yeah, what's wrong with it? Isn't that what the Bible teaches, that, that we die and go to heaven for all of eternity as souls without bodies? Well, unfortunately, that idea doesn't come from the Bible. You know where it comes from is a guy named Plato. Yeah, that Plato. He, he said that the, 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 the soul is imprisoned in the body and that at death, the soul is finally set free from that prison. And that is also the view, apparently, of some in the Corinthian church. Look with me at verse 12 here. He says, it is pre if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So what are they denying? They're not denying that Jesus rose. They're denying that they will rise. Everybody tracking? Now, there's two schools of thought that this could be. There were the Epicureans who believed that both soul and body are done at death, much like modern secularism, Okay. And then there were the, the Platonists who believed the soul lived on without the body. And when we look down at verse 29, don't, don't turn there, we see that they practiced baptism for the dead, right? So they had some sort of idea of an afterlife of the soul. Now, what does Paul say here? Does he say, hey, that's an okay tweak to the gospel? No, he, he, writes, he writes to correct this. He sees this as a big distortion. He sees it, first of all, as logically absurd. He's saying, you guys believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but deny that the dead want to be raised because they have this platonic idea that the soul is better than the body and, and that really what you want to be is freed from the body. He's saying, if you're denying the resurrection, how can you hold that Jesus is risen? That doesn't make any sense. It's logically absurd and it wrecks the gospel. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So what's he saying? The idea that a soul without a body for all eternity is somehow good news. It isn't. It wrecks the gospel. Instead, he points them in another direction, to hope in physical resurrection. To hope in physical resurrection. I use the word physical on purpose so that you don't think I'm talking about some sort of spiritual thing without a body as what he's talking about. It's not. He says hope in physical resurrection because physical resurrection validates the gospel. This is the outline, outline people. It validates the gospel. It is our vision of hope and it is God's final victory on earth. Physical resurrection validates the gospel. It is our vision of hope, and it is God's final victory. So first of all, physical resurrection validates the gospel. 
Well, whose physical resurrection in this case? Well, in, in 13 through 15, we see that it's Christ's physical resurrection, okay? Where he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so the resurrection of Christ validates the gospel. How so? It verifies the intangible claims. Look at verses 16 through 17. It says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now, Paul very clearly teaches elsewhere that the cross of Christ is what forgives sins. But it is the resurrection that let you know it worked, lets you know it worked. There, there's one time where Jesus was teaching in a house, and some people lower a guy who was paralyzed through the roof. And Jesus, seeing their faith, it says to the guy, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room, especially the, the Jewish leaders, were like, who does this dude think he is? He doesn't have the power to forgive sin, right? And forgiveness of sin is an intangible thing. So he, Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And he commands the guy, get up and walk. And he heals the guy. And so it's this sign, this miraculous sign that validates his claim about his sins being forgiven. That makes sense to everybody? So if Christ is not risen, then the claim of the gospel that our sin is forgiven is not validated. But because Christ is risen, it validates the gospel. If we believe in only a spiritual future hope, first of all, that logically doesn't work because the resurrection of Jesus is our whole thing, right? It's hard to get very far as a Christian not being aware or not believing that Jesus did not rise. But then we don't put it together with, and we will rise. We say, well, Jesus has risen physically, but we'll exist forever spiritually. It doesn't make sense together, as Paul says. It's also at odds with the historic Christian faith. I, this is not me finding something new in the Bible. When you look at the most ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the rule of faith from Irenaeus, they all blatantly say, our future hope is the resurrection of the dead, right? Not that we're souls in heaven, but that we have forever bodies. The other thing is that if, if, if we do not believe in the physical resurrection, we miss out on much of the good news. Now, We'll get more into this. I, I want to be clear about something. If your belief is that you're a soul in heaven forever, first of all, I'm glad you're here. I hope this doesn't sting too much, right? This can be kind of jarring to be like, wait, what? But I want to be clear that this is not a heresy. A heresy is something that presents itself as the Christian faith but isn't. This would be a false teaching. It's affirming something the Bible doesn't teach. Right? And we miss out on the good news. For some of us, like I've just taken the train to crazy town because I'm talking about a man rising again from death and us rising again from death. Isn't resurrection impossible? Don't we know more now? We have iPhones and like Richard Branson's up to something that clearly demonstrates our superior knowledge of the world to ancient people who were gullible. All right, so we, we talked last week a lot about some of the evidence around the resurrection. I'm just going to ask two questions. 
if, if you're struggling with just the idea that a man could, could rise from the dead. First of all, you say resurrection's impossible, how do you know? Is that a proven claim? Do you have evidence to, to say, sufficient evidence to say resurrection is impossible? It's unusual, I will give you that. I only know of one so far, <laughs> okay? But impossible is quite a different thing. That's an assumption that is unproven, okay? Second, if there were a God, like with creation power and all that, would resurrection be perfectly feasible? Yes, it would, right? So it's not a problem with the claim of the event of resurrection. It's a problem with our pre-assumptions about what is possible. If Christ is risen, that means all other promises are validated. When Scripture, when God's Word tells us you are forgiven in Christ's cross, it is validated by the resurrection. When we're told that we exist in spiritual union with Christ, these are not tangible things, but the resurrection is. It validates the gospel. We need to hope in physical resurrection. It's also really, really crucial for right now in how we live in the world and in how we deal with the world. Physical resurrection is our vision of hope. Paul, first of all, says that the soul in heaven is not a sufficient vision of hope. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, if Christ is, is not risen, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be, most to be pitied. So what does Paul think about this view that you're a soul in heaven? It's insufficient. It means that the sacrifice you make for the gospel is not worth it. Soul in heaven is an insufficient hope. So for whom is resur future resurrection, physical resurrection, a hope? Well, first of all, it's a hope for ourselves. Look at verse 20. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruit, that's an agricultural image he's giving to a very agricultural world. We don't know it as well. Some of you grew up farm kids, I'm sure. First fruits, yeah, that's right, Sunet, farm kid. First fruits is when you have like a, a field planted, let's say of wheat. For a long time, all these stalks of wheat are growing, 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 nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, and then finally there's a first fruit. There's a plant that, that shoots forth its, its wheat things, whatever they're called. <laughs> Okay? Is that the last one? No. The first one shows you what they're all going to be. Right? That's the idea of the first fruit. So he's saying the dead are like a planted wheat field, and Christ is the first fruits. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to all in Christ. That our dead bodies come back to glorious life. That is our hope but it's also hope for humanity. It's not just an individual hope. It's a hope for all human beings. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. So, so what do they have in common? Adam stands at the front of all humanity, correct? But everyone who comes from Adam is fallen, doomed to die. 
Christ is a new Adam because he stands before a whole new humanity, resurrected humanity, glorious humanity, humanity that was as, as we were meant to be. Why do we need this vision of hope? Why do we need a glorious vision of the future when, when death is no more, when human beings are made as we were supposed to be? You're going to need a vision of hope. I once ran a marathon. I'll never do it again, but I did. And I was in good training at the time for running. And, you know, miles 1 through 20 were kind of breezy. wasn't hard at all. And around mile 23, I'm starting to get tired. And at mile 24, I, I was doing the Colfax. And I came around the corner on 17th Street. You know that little hill up 17th coming out of downtown? Well, that hill might as well have been guarded by dragons because I turned that corner and I said, no. <laughs> just looking up at it, I just didn't have it. There was nothing left in the tank, right? And, but I started trudging up. Everything hurt and I was dying. But you know what I did? I said, at the finish line, first of all, I will have completed a marathon and I can't chicken out now and tell my kids I quit. I also know my kids will be there with signs, and they were. And I know I'll get chocolate milk, which I love. And I could lay on the grass and just sleep. I did. Take a nap right there. And also, I was planning on having a huge cheeseburger later. Okay? All of these things were in front of me. That was my vision of hope. And so when I hit the wall in the marathon, that vision of hope kept me moving forward through the total hellscape of my body at that moment, okay? Hope in physical resurrection because that's our vision of hope, okay? Sometimes you don't need a vision of hope. Sometimes your life is going great, your body feels good, right? Everything is just, like, we live in a very odd history bubble where for, for, for many people in history, they need a vision of hope every day of their life because they were born oppressed or born enslaved or born diseased or were victims of violence, okay? So some of us were like, oh, vision of hope, who needs that? I'm 30. You won't be forever. A day is coming when your body will start to break down. Somewhere around 45, I think where you get injuries and they don't heal like they used to. When you start realizing, oh, that's more gray hair on my beard. You can tell I'm not going through this. I am. When you realize that you need a vision of hope beyond death or else you will simply die of panic right now. Not only that, but for people you love, the older you get, the more people you know who have terminal illness, the more people you know and love who are close to their last day. And what then? It's not good enough to say, well, I feel good and everything's cool. Everything won't be cool forever. You're going to need a vision of hope or you're going to quit right now. We need the vision of hope that death is not the end. 
that death does not have the last word, that Jesus does. That death is undone. That all of the horrors that have been unleashed by humanity, on humanity throughout world history, are answered fully and finally in the resurrection of the dead. That every tyrant and every oppressor has their work undone instead of God's work being undone. Now, for some of you, you might be saying, so does that mean we don't go to heaven when we die? We do. Okay, relax. We're, you're, good. you're in Christ. You're fine. <laughs> All right? You have nothing to fear. Jesus says to the, the, the thief on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our hope is not life after death. As the great N.T. Wright says, our hope is life after life after death. Our ultimate hope is not soul in heaven. Our ultimate hope is that death is undone. Having a vision of the future that is more in line with the good news, it changes what we do right now. Instead of looking at the physical world as some stupid waste of time, at best, we see it as part of our eternal hope. The things that you take joy in that you might feel kind of bad because they're not super spiritual. You like playing baseball. You like playing the piano. Right? By the way, music, guys, you can't make music or hear music without a body. We all realize that, right? That's a very physical, physical thing. You enjoy cooking. You enjoy eating. <laughs> okay? All of these things that are physical are part of God's redemption. That is part of what is being redeemed. Am I saying that physical is important and spiritual isn't? I'm saying both are important, okay? Like a lot of the time, we, we, we misunderstand our future hope, and so we misunderstand what to do right now. I've heard people say, well, why would we feed or clothe people and worry about their physical needs if their spiritual needs are what really matters, right? But if the physical is part of God's redemption, if it is part of our vision of hope, then it makes all the sense in the world, not just to delight in creation, but to care about others' physical needs, okay? To not just honor God in the spirit, but to honor God in what we do physically, to enjoy what he has given us, to delight in it, to give it up to his glory. Physical resurrection, we need to hope in physical resurrection, not only because it validates the gospel and because it is our vision of hope, but physical resurrection is God's final victory on earth. Physical resurrection is God's final victory on earth. Verse 23 tells us that physical resurrection signals Christ's return to earth. It says, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So the resurrection and the coming of Christ are a single event. I also want you to point out and keep in mind for later, it says comes. He comes, not we goes. Got it? All right. Second, physical resurrection redeems earth. Look at verses 24. Through 26, he says, then the end will come. Now, don't trip on end. 
It's the Greek word telos. It does not mean cessation, right, like the end of a movie. It means completion, like, like you built something and you're at the end of the construction project. It's built. Got it? Okay, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When is death destroyed, guys? It's when it's undone. It's at the resurrection. It's when death's power is fully and finally broken. That is the last enemy. We all see that? Okay, where is this happening? So he comes. Okay, where does he come to? Does Jesus come to heaven? No, he returns here. And he reigns where? Does he need to reign in heaven until his enemies are destroyed? Does God have enemies in heaven? No, he reigns on earth until his enemy is destroyed. And his enemies are not, you know, you and me. It's death. It's the effects of sin. It's war. It's oppression. It's poverty. Those are the enemies of God. Resurrection is the undoing of the effects of sin. Tracking? Signals Christ's return to earth. It redeems earth and also restores God's order on earth. Look at verses 27 through 28. It says, For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. That's a smoothing out of the Greek. The Greek is so much worse. Paul sometimes is difficult to understand what he's saying. Is that Jesus, in his reign, restores God's order on earth. Right? That, that Jesus, subduing all the enemies of God, death being the last, then submits himself to God the Father, restoring the order that was broken by sin. It's kind of like, it's kind of like after we had our house fire, you know, there's a lot of things that needed to come out of our house. <laughs> Water damage stuff, things covered in asbestos. There was, you know, a hundred years of, of half-fixed house to pull out all of the damage done to it over, over the years. And then new things had to go in. It had to be restored to what it should have been, right? Same idea. Physical resurrection is God's final victory on earth. Now, some of you may be like, wait, are you saying that our eternal hope is not as souls in heaven, but as glorified bodies on earth? Yeah. Like, think about this. Where does Jesus return to? Where does he build the kingdom? It is on earth. Where is he talking about defeating God's enemies and handing the kingdom over? Does that need to be done in heaven? No, it needs to be done on earth. It is God's final victory on earth. This might sound familiar. Remember when Jesus said, thy kingdom go, thy kingdom, <laughs> thy will be done in heaven. No, that's not what he said, is it? He says, thy kingdom, what? Come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that make more sense now? If God's kingdom is on earth, Jesus comes, the beginning of his ministry, he says, repent, 
for the kingdom of God is here. A lot of people say, well, what about all those verses where it says the earth explodes and, and we all go as souls to heaven again? Okay, you may be thinking of first P- or Second Peter, rather, chapter 3, uh, verses 10 and following, okay, where, where it does not say that the earth explodes. Instead, it says that it's renewed. It gives us an image of a smelting furnace and talking about it that a lot of people misread as the explosion of earth. It's not what's going on. How, how is it victory? How is it redemption for God to destroy everything? That doesn't make much sense, does it? It's God renewing everything. Even when we look at the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, what happens? It's heaven descends to earth, a new Jerusalem on earth, God coming to dwell here. It's not an image of us going up there, but heaven coming to earth. Resurrection is God's final victory on earth. God doesn't win his victory over violence and death through more violence and death. Instead, through the undoing of violence and death. Hope and physical resurrection. Because it validates the gospel, it gives us a vision of hope, and it is God's final victory. Hoping in the resurrection, the physical resurrection, actually can carry us through and give us strength right now. What would it be like to follow Adolf Hitler as the head of state of Germany. There's one guy that knows. His name is Conrad Adenauer. I don't know if you can fully appreciate, or any of us could fully appreciate, the burden that was on this guy leading Germany after the Third Reich. The country was destroyed. The economy didn't exist. The infrastructure was shattered. And the human toll of the war Right? Millions and millions of your working age males were all dead. Almost all of them. The rest of the population was horrifically traumatized. And Germany sat on the, new, the fault line of the new Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West. I, don't, I wouldn't be too excited about that job. I think I would quit the first day and probably cry, then quit, and then cry some more. But Konrad Adenauer did an amazing job leading West Germany out of the post-war years. How did he do it? Well, I heard a story about a young evangelist named Billy Graham going to visit Konrad Adenauer. He was there preaching the gospel in West Germany, and he got an audience with Konrad Adenauer. And, uh, and so he was sitting in his, his office, and Adenauer's looking out at Berlin, which was completely destroyed. There wasn't a building left standing in Berlin. And he turned to Billy Graham and he said, Reverend Graham, do you believe in the resurrection? And Billy Graham starts literally fumbling the question. He just like starts rambling, he said. And then he remembered, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yes I do, he said. <laughs> and he said, Reverend Graham, apart from the resurrection, I know of no hope for mankind. What allowed him to put one foot in front of the other trudging through the most crushing despair possible, it was that he hoped in the resurrection. That hope is available to you and me today. Please pray with me.